You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Well, good morning. Glad you guys are here this morning on this chilly day. We're going to continue in Esther. And uh, as we do, just want to ask you to ponder a question. Have you ever got to this point where something weird happens in your life and you go, was that just like coincidence? Or is something else working behind the scenes? Coincidence or providence? That's where we're going to be this morning. So I'm just going to let that sit there and let you marinate on that for a few moments. Coincidence or providence? I came across um, a quote this week that kind of made me, me sad, so I figured I'd share it with you. How about that? Um, but it has, to do with, um, it has to do with how God weaves his story through his word. And um, Esther, as you know, by this point, we're about three weeks into Esther. This is a weird book. I mean, you've got like this maniacal king and his harem and like, what is this doing? And what am I supposed to get out of this thing? Here's the quote that um, just brought a little tear to my eye a little bit. Kind of, honestly, just choked me up. This is from Richard Dawkins, who's a um, biological scientist and he's an atheist. Here's, here's what he says. He says, to be fair, much of the Bible is not systematically evil, but just plain weird, as you would expect of a chaotically cobbled together anthology of disjointed documents. And it kind of made me go, oh. And skeptics will look at Esther especially and go, see, what is this even doing in here? And the reason it broke my heart is I'm going, dude, you're just not reading it right. You're not reading it with the right lens, you would read Esther and go, ah, it's all coincidental. Or is it providential? Is God actually telling a story in this strange book? So this is the third week of our quick four-week series through Esther, and today we're going to be in chapters 5 and 6. So if you had to, you could summarize all of Esther 5 and 6 in two words. Subtle sovereignty. Subtle sovereignty. Reading through Esther, you get two completely unavoidable realities at this point. You've got this idea that the world is crazy, it has gone off the rails, nothing seems to make sense. And then you've got this other reality that there's a smokescreen God who is barely visible, maybe disinterested, and potentially non-existent. Does it remind you of any world that you know of? Sure. So this week I was in a conversation with somebody here at, uh, at the chapel and he made this kind of slightly sheepish confession to me where he said, I've never really read Esther before. Like that's like women's studies stuff, like Bible studies over there. I was like, what do, what do we have to read with the guys in Esther? And then he said, but I've been reading it the last couple of weeks. He's like, man, this is so good. I think that Esther is probably one of the most misunderstood, misread, underutilized, relevant, compelling, powerful pieces in scripture that we can turn our eyes to in these days. Why? Esther's story hovers around three questions, and here they are. Is there a God? That's the first question. Is he sovereign? And is he good? Those are the three questions that kind of are woven throughout Esther's story. Is there a God? 
Like, is, is, does something even exist out there beyond the ether, beyond what I see? Is there a God? Is he sovereign? Like, is he actually controlling this world? Does he have any influence, or did he just set it and then just kind of walk away and he's busy doing his thing wherever he is? And then last thing, is he good? Like, if he is sovereign, is he at all interested in me? Is there any benefit to me in following or worshiping this God? Esther invites us to dare to believe that despite our inclinations to the contrary, everything we think, everything we see, everything we even feel emotionally sometimes, that yes, there is a God, yes, he is sovereign, and yes, he wants to reveal himself as profoundly good to you. And no other section of Esther shows this as clearly as Esther 5 and 6. And so if you've ever wondered, man, what does it look like for God to be sovereignly in control of this broken world? and still show some level of human responsibility in your life, then today is going to be for you. So this morning, just a couple of chapters together, and we're going to walk this invisible line and ask this very timely question. Coincidence or providence? Which is it? So just to set the bearings a little bit, here's what's up. Haman, who is the villain in this story, has drafted a proposal for the annihilation of the Jewish people. That was last week. And Xerxes, who's this king, Esther's husband, has just signed it into law. The wheels are in motion. Now, Esther has kept her Jewish identity hidden from absolutely everybody. And so with her people on the risk of annihilation, with her personal security at risk, and her actual life in the hands of her less-than-rational king, husband, Esther has now come convinced that her life's purpose is to play a part in her own rescue. She knows where we were last week at the end of chapter 4. She knows she's got one thing to say to plead for the future of her people, and she's only going to get one chance to say it. And that brings us to Esther chapter 5, verse 1. Just watch on the screens, or you can follow along in your copy of God's Word. Esther chapter 5, verse 1. Here we go. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw the queen, Esther, standing in the court, remember, he could kill her on the spot if she displeased him, she won the favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What's your request? It shall be given to you even half of my kingdom. And so right now you're going like, Oh my gosh, is she going to say it? Like, here it comes. Verse 4. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. The king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked, which is really funny considering his views of women and leadership for Queen Vashti. You remember her story. <laughs> so let's do what, king, or what, what Queen Esther says. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what's your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Sound familiar? He just asked this. And you're going, okay, is she going to say it like... Second time's the charm, right, Esther? Here's your window. Here's what she says. Esther says, My wish and my request is this. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to a feast that I'll prepare for them, and tomorrow I'll do as the king 
<laughs> said. Now, this is not what we would naturally expect, right? When you're reading along, you've got all this pressure building, and if this is your first time reading through Esther, it kind of feels a little bit like a disappointment, right? This is a little bit like a curveball. You're going, hey, this was your pitch. This was your window. The king asks you twice, what do you want? And there's like a mile of daylight between verses 3 and 4 and verses 6 and 7. He says, what do you want, Esther? Name it. It's all yours. Up to half of my kingdom. And she just like freezes. Tomorrow, come back. We'll, we'll talk tomorrow. That's really hard to read, isn't it? Because like you're doing the same thing I am. If you've been following with us the last couple of weeks. Last week we said that sometimes God wants to push you through the problem, not rescue you from the problem. And here she is, like she's through. This is your time, Esther. If you've been tracking the last couple of weeks through Esther, you've seen her move from orphan girl to I perish, and you're like, come on, Esther, you can do it. Just come on. And so right here, like, she's stepping up to the plate. She's getting ready to swing, and the pitcher winds up, and you're holding your breath. And then here comes, like, a softball lobbed across the plate, and she just watches it go by. And then here comes another one. Strike two. And you're like, come on, swing the bat. What was this about? This was your opportunity, Esther. You've got the king right where you want him. Ability. You've cashed in all your queenly poker chips. You've got the two arguably most powerful people in the kingdom as a private audience. What is the holdup? Well, we're going to get to a couple potential theories as to why she doesn't step up in just a bit. But for right now, just a quick little aside. Opportunity itself doesn't change the world. We should know that. Just because you've got an idea, just because you've got an opportunity, just because you've got a thought, just because you even have a burden for something, that's not enough. Those are good things, but something else is needed, and more on that in just a minute. So why does Esther not step up? There's a couple theories out there among Bible scholars, and it's good to walk through this for just a few minutes this morning. First, um, this is the most common theory out there, is that she lost her courage which you could kind of see there. You go like, well, according to this theory, Esther was going to bring it up, and she just got cold feet, which sort of makes sense in one way because Xerxes is not known for being a very rational person. Remember, this is the guy that whipped the sea when it busted a bridge that he had a team build. He's not a very stable guy. So maybe she just got a little nervous. Second option or theory out there is maybe she's just being extra calculating. Now, this one's a very common theory that maybe her plan is just to kind of like gradually work her mojo a little bit and like warm Xerxes up to the idea that maybe she's on his side and she's got a good thing going. And while initially that might be tempting to believe, um, actually, I think that's actually kind of offensive to the, to the whole book, because why would you devote an entire book in God's word to the power of her persuasion. Like, why would we, what does that have to do with anything? That doesn't really seem to connect to what God's trying to communicate to us in his word. Third option, and this is the least common because it's kind of the furthest reaching, that God told her to do this. This idea of like, well, I want you to go into the king and then, and then have the banquet and then have the other banquet. This is like direct from God. So here's the, that sounds nice because she's had three days, remember, in a fast. She's had three days to pray before coming into the king. 
And that sounds kind of nice, but here's the problem with this one. Remember, Esther is the only book in the Bible that doesn't mention God. And so it's a little strange to me that if God were to speak at this point, this incredibly crucial plot point, that the writer wouldn't go, "Ah," right? Why would he be missing here? That doesn't make any sense to me. So here's my theory. I have no idea. (laughs) How about that for preaching? (laughs) No, I think think it, it could be any of those. But here's the larger point is like when we get to these places in Scripture that are not clear, we should resist the urge to force clarity, okay? What scripture is clear about, we should speak loudly about, and what scripture is not clear about, we should resist the urge to speculate about. Here's what I want you to understand. Whenever you're reading God's word, especially places in the Old Testament, God loves you too much to let you miss anything important. And so if that question was very important for the Esther narrative, you'd know it. If we want our thinking to be informed by the word, we must Resist the urge to invent content. So, one thing I want us to remember before we get into the real tension of this text this morning. Remember, Esther is not about Esther. Esther is not the hero of this story. Esther is not even the main character of this story, even though it's named after her. This is God's often invisible yet perpetually powerful hand moving for his glory, his timing, and for his purposes. And what happens later this night reveals that to us, that whatever gave Esther cause for pause was not only right, but it allowed God space to work in a way that only he can work. And you're going to see this, because his unseen hand is about to reach through the pages of this narrative and twist the plot. So hang on for just a minute. Before we get there, though, the text sort of shifts a little bit. We're going to leave Esther and Xerxes over here because there's two other characters that we need to understand, Mordecai and Haman. These guys are complete opposites of each other, and we need to understand their struggle. And so let's pick it up again in verse 9. Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. Like he just partied with the king and the queen. He's the only guy. Dude, I'm the man. When Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Remember, Haman had ordered this guy to bow to him, and Mordecai says, eh, can't do it. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh, and Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotion with which the king had honored him, and how he advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she had prepared. And tomorrow also I'm invited by her together with the king. Yet, all of this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. And his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged on it, and then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Dude, get a hobby. So what's with this guy? Here's the thing with Haman. Haman is a very little man with a very big ego. His circumstances are what determine his happiness in life. And right here, he wants one thing. 
He wants complete and total worship from everybody in the kingdom. And he's not getting it from one guy, Mordecai. Jeez. Now, maybe you caught this, but here's the irony. Haman has enormous amounts of wealth, ensuring his personal stability. He has ten sons, you'll find this out later, ensuring his family's legacy. He's got clout. He's got status. The name Haman in ancient Persian actually means illustrious. He's a big deal. But for all his pretentious, propped-up power, Haman can't enjoy any of it unless he has all of it. He can't enjoy anything unless he has everything. That's how twisted this guy is. The ironic thing is, he wants the worship of a guy he doesn't even like. Jeez. That's how funny pride can be in our lives, can't it? <laughs> you felt that way, right? Not to this extreme, I hope. <laughs> but you felt some level of this. This is how pride twists what's good in us. Here's the thing. Haman's problem is not Mordecai. Haman's problem is Haman. And his pride just blinds him to seeing that. What's he really want? He really wants God. He just doesn't know that. His pride won't let him see it. 19th century English theologian named Adam Clark puts it like this. The soul was made for God and nothing but God can fill it or make it happy. Try everything you want, right? Pascal called this the God-shaped hole. And every one of us has this inside, right? This is the eternal problem with every one of us. Behind every sinful ambition, every prideful pursuit, all the misguided meandering through life, there is a legitimate longing underneath that. We were all made to know the unconditional love of God. And we are restless looking everywhere until we find it. What's our problem? On its way out of our heart, that longing gets twisted by sin and becomes something terrible. Every man who cheats on his wife is looking for God. Every woman caught in an emotional affair is looking for God. Everybody who overspends thinking that this thing is going to make me happy is looking for God. Everybody who goes on a weekend binge looking for God. It just gets twisted on its way out. It's what sin and pride does. All of those paltry pleasures are pointing us to the reality that we were made for something that this world can never satisfy in us, but only awaken in us. We can't get it from the world. It just reminds us that we were made for something. And all of us, with our Chinese menu of addictions, we're all just looking for God. And looking around at our world today, don't you know that's exactly what it is? It's 8 billion people, give or take, all scratching and clawing through the dark. This maze that we just call life, and we're only navigated by this burned-out candle of our inner sense of oughtness, and we can't find our way through it, trying a billion and one different things, and it never works. This is like Augustine. He said this. He says, our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. And until we recognize that, we are all on Haman's path. So Haman's story is a little bit a cautionary tale of what pride is capable of doing in our own lives. So Haman invites his best friends over. He calls his wife in, verse 10. He gives them a tour of his personal trophy room, verse 11. He flaunts how he has the queen's favor, verse 12. And then he whines about how none of it is enough. <laughs> and then his wife, Zeresh, who is a very small but very major important character in this whole narrative, speaks up. She kind of plays to his pride and she says, hey, Mordecai, or, hey, hey Haman, if Mordecai bothers you so much, here's an idea. How about you just build a gallows, 
hang the guy on it. You'll have the king's favor. You're in his dinner like, you got to get the queen to back you. This is not going to be a problem. Just deal with it and move on. 50 cubits, a little bit of cultural context for you because last time you went to Home Depot, I'm pretty sure the lumber doesn't measure in cubits down there. 50 cubits is 75 feet tall. That's half the size of the smokestack in front of the Hoover building. It's a little over the top there, isn't it, Heyman? But you be you. I get it. So practically, dude summons a construction crew in the span of a couple hours, has them build a very obvious, ominous warning sign that everybody would have noticed. All of Susa wakes up the next morning and goes, what is that about? Overnight, everybody would have been instantly impressed with Haman's power, efficiency, and raw ability, and that's exactly what he wants. So imagine the sound of a construction crew working through the night, Haman resting comfortably, Thoughts of sweet revenge, rocking him to sleep. Mordecai, no doubt seeing the whole thing go up, putting two and two together, going, huh. <laughs> and just a few steps away, you guys are dark. You're laughing at the darkest part of this whole story. <laughs> a few steps away behind a locked door, secure in his palace, where no one else can go, Surrounded by reminders of his own ability and his own awesomeness, no one can touch him. King Xerxes is alone, autonomous, and able to do whatever he wants until something happens that turns this whole story inside out. Chapter 6, verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep. Stop. Could have been the construction crew outside his window. <laughs> could have been a little indigestion from the feast. It could have been a guilty conscience, doubtful. <laughs> the king could not sleep. Coincidence or providence? Xerxes commands 127 provinces, over 2 million square miles, from India to Ethiopia. Half of the ancient world is at his beck and call. But by some unseen power, working behind the scenes, the folds of a curtain in a Persian bedroom, he is incapable of sleep. Xerxes can do anything he wants, not this. <laughs> Xerxes commands armies, he conquers empires, not this. He's 48 years old at the height of his power and something is keeping him awake. Coincidence or providence? So with a harem full of beautiful women down the back stairwell, all the pleasures of the ancient world at his doorstep, the best food, the best wine, the best doctors, the best musician, whatever possible sleep aid his advisors could have possibly offered to him, what's he do? Here's what he says. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. Now, what's that about? Ancient kings kept records of their reigns, kind of took notes of their accomplishments, military conquests, economic programs, big construction projects, important happenings in the life of the kingdom. This is kind of like one part autobiography, one part journal, one part political memoir. And if you read these things, they always share a couple characteristics. One, the kings always look amazing. Their kingdoms always look really, really good. And the world is always their oyster, ready for the taking and the making, right up Xerxes' alley. 
It's like, hey, I'm tired. I need some rest. Somebody read me something that will remind me of how awesome I are. <laughs> so, verse 2. And it was found, written how Mordecai had told Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus, King Xerxes, same guy. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's young men who attended him said, nothing's been done. So, whoa, whoa, whoa. What is this? Five years earlier, Mordecai just happened to uncover a plot by two would-be assassins of King Xerxes. He tries the guys and has them hung. A little buried in history there. Now here we are five years later, coincidentally, the king can't sleep. Coincidentally, he asks for a court attendant to read to him. Coincidentally, the court attendant finds the bookshelf full of the king's histories. Coincidentally, he chooses a chapter from a book written five years earlier. Coincidentally, he starts reading a passage about how Mordecai saved the king's life. And coincidentally, this story moves this king to a place where he feels a very strange emotion called empathy. Coincidentally. And so Xerxes, eager to rectify his oversight, in the middle of the night, at least in the wee hours of the morning, says, hey, anybody out there in the court that can help me think this thing through, because I've got to do right by this person who saved my life. And coincidentally, guess who's out in the courtyard? Haman. He just happens to be there. Take a look in verse 6. This is where this really gets great. Verse 6. So Haman came in. The king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. <laughs> and Haman said to himself, don't you love like this little inner monologue that we get? This is a really good perspective. Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, let the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought which the king has worn and the horse that the king has ridden and on whose head a royal crown has been set and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let, him, let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Jeez, dude, you're not holding back much, are you? Like, I understand a party, but okay. Get this. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry. And you can hear Haman just going, Yeah, bring it. Take the robes and the horse, just as you've said. And do so to Mordecai the Jew, who is sitting at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. And so Haman took the robes and the horse and dressed Mordecai. And he led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man who the king delights to honor. <sighs> Sweet irony, right? <laughs> Perfect example of irony, because... What we expected to happen didn't happen, and what we thought could never happen, in fact, does. All because of a little sovereign sleeplessness, a little divine insomnia. Coincidence or providence? One last scene, scene four. Take a look at verse 12. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wife, or then his wise men, sorry, and his wife Zeresh said to him, 
If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Ooh. You catch the irony in that? What a scene. A couple of things kind of speak to the irony here. First, just a couple of days ago, it was Mordecai who was walking around, right? He tore his robe and he put ashes on his head. He's wearing sackcloth like a potato sack, wandering around the kingdom of Susa. And now here it is. Haman has his head covered. The fact that he doesn't have ashes on his head is actually indicative of the fact that his shame is not in mourning for somebody else, but it's for him. He's like, I just want to get out of here. I wish I wasn't here anymore. Second piece of irony in this one, he heads home, (laughs) hoping to find solace or respite in the voices of his best friends and his wife. He certainly doesn't get it. At least in their mind, he's moved from being like MVP to like hot potato. Don't touch this guy. Third little piece of irony in this, and probably the most ironic of all, Haman's wife, who was totally on his side in this whole thing, who is not Jewish, who is probably just as steeped in Persian culture as he is, she's the one prophesying about what's going to happen. Did you catch that little, like, hint? That comes from her mouth. She's a pagan. She doesn't know God. Outside of Mordecai's words in chapter 4 to Esther, like, who knows if you've been brought to this place for such a time as this, right? That's like awkwardly close to talking about God. Outside of that, this is the closest we get to God's activity in this whole book. So from this point forward, you can kind of feel it. The scales are starting to tip, and this web that Haman wove is starting to break apart. The pace will quicken, it's picking up speed, rushing to its climax, which we will get to next week. <laughs> Here's the thing, like, I promise it because we're starting Advent on the 28th, so you know we've got to wrap it up. Here's where we're going, though. So we do have to ask the question, what does an insomniac king, his ego-bruised lackey, and a six-story gallows mean for us today? So if your answer is, well, I guess there's, you'd be right, but you'd only be half right. I guess everything happens for a reason. You'd be right, but you'd only be half right. Remember, Esther's entire story hovers around three very essential, very base questions that every human is asking, especially in times like these. Is there a God? Is he sovereign? And is he good? At the risk of sounding too obviously on the nose with this, I can't think of three more pressing questions that our world is asking right now. Is there a God? Is he sovereign? And is he good? Anybody else wondered that in the last year, two? Sure you have. Sounds like this. What in the world is going on out there? What's going to happen to my kids What's going to happen to my grandkids? What's going to happen if this scenario? What's going to happen if this scenario? Why would a sovereign God let this happen? Why would a sovereign God let me lose this friendship that used to be so good? Why would a sovereign God let me lose my job, my spouse, or my family? If God is so kind, why am I such a mess? 
inside. If God is always working, why does everything seem so lost? If God is so good, why does his world look so bad? That's what that sounds like. And you know it, but here's the thing. It is not enough to simply shrug our shoulders and go, well, I guess there's no such thing as coincidences. Well, I guess everything happens for a reason. That's true, but it's only half true. Here's why that's so unfulfilling. That's black and white without the color. That is missing two questions that everybody is asking. Who and why? First question, who? Is anybody behind this thing that we call our world and and life? Is there anybody back there? Or is this just complete chaos? And we just happen to find each other like molecules bouncing around in the world, and then boom, life happens. And is there anybody back there? Who? That's the first question everyone's asking. The second one is why? Is there any purpose to this? Is there any design to this? Is there any point? Because if not, like, cash it in, I'm done. Who and why? And just offering simple, catchy, pithy, trite, churchy-sounding sayings is not going to work. Our world is staring at the 75-foot gallows and going, who and why? And you better give me an answer, and you better give it to me quick. And if your picture of God does not include some sense of subtle sovereignty, I want nothing to do with him. Remember when this became very real for, um, for Mandy and I. The time that I was most tempted to doubt God's sovereignty, here's when it was. We were living um, outside Chicago, and um, uh, Hannah wasn't born yet. Uh, Joseph probably was three, and uh, Karsten would have been two. And um, so Karsten came into our room kind of late one night, and um, like he just had this like gray look to him, and just like didn't look well. And so we're like, oh, that's, what's going on? And so in his little two-year-old voice, he says, I'm sick, I'm sick. And so we said, okay, you know, and so didn't look good. So we're like, well, it's like, you know, late at night, what are we going to do? So... Um, we did what a lot of young parents do. Everything is an emergency. So we took him to the emergency room, and I'm really glad that we did. We took him to Sherman Hospital in, um, in Elgin, Illinois, and um, I'm trying to be the dad. Mandy was home with, uh, with, Car- or with, with Joseph, and I'm sitting there in the, the room. You know how this is. And nurse comes in, and she's like, hi, Karsten, how are you? And he's like, I sick, I sick, right? And um, so they, they put him in the little room and take his vitals. You know how that goes, right? They do the temperature thing, and you know, he's okay. You know, he looks a little sick. And then they put the little clippy clip on his finger to check his pulse. And, um, like, this nurse's eyes got, like, wide. And um, it's kind of honestly a blur to me. But what happened was within the span of, like, a couple of minutes, there's, like, doctors and nurses coming out of the walls, it seemed. And they're taking Karsten, and then they're putting him down on a gir- little gurney thing with wheels. And they're wheeling him through. And I see someone reach for the little zappers. And I'm going, hey, wait, Dad. Hey, Dad here. Like, info, please. This is incredibly important. And so one of the nurses stopped and said, uh, Mr. Marshall, we just want to let you know that your son's heart rate is over 300 beats per minute, and we can't get it to stop. And um, so we're going to try and shock his heart to stop it. And I'm going, hey, you know, he's two. <laughs> like, uh. And so, like, I'm freaking out. And, um, like, the next thing I do remember is we're going down 290 on our way um, down to Children's Hospital in downtown Chicago. And I'm following an ambulance where Mandy is sitting in the ambulance ahead of me. And Karsten's in there with a couple of med techs. And I'm driving our van just going, like, well. 
So we get down there, and eventually they do um, get his heart back into rhythm. And this whole time, like I'm driving down 290, probably like 290 miles an hour, and going like, God, what are you doing? Like, what is going on right now? This is not possible. Like, why? And you know, if you're a parent, you get this. Like, it's this weird, all this stuff just goes through, through your mind. And you, you cannot possibly have any purpose behind this. Like, and you're definitely not doing this for my benefit. How selfish is that? <laughs> right? You go, God, will you just work? Like, what is going on? How long are you going to let this thing happen? Like, what is going on? And so God, providentially, I believe, brought us to one of the best pediatric cardiologists in the country who met with us and explained to us that Karsten had a heart condition that was not fatal, but he'd have to take some medicine. We'd have to watch it for a little while. And Long story short, he's well past that, and he's doing great. But if I asked you, could you point to a time in your life where you doubted the subtle sovereignty of God? Everybody in this room, you could raise your hand and cite some experience like that where you were brought right up close to the edge of unbelief. And you go, what do I do? So here's what I want you to know this morning. God's providence over your life is both personal and purposeful. God's providence over your life is both personal and it is purposeful. Looking back on that season, it was a deeply formative time for Mandy and I. Fast forward 600 years. I'll just... just, Fast forward 600 years in the book of Esther, you have Paul, who's writing to the church in Rome, and they're being persecuted, and they're going, what is going on in this world? And then Paul says this. It sounds so, oh, it's like scandalously clear how he says it. He says, and we know that God works all things together for the good, for those who love him, those who have called, been called according to his purpose. God works all things It's a striking statement. God works. This is his universe. He orders it, and he works in it. Well, what does he do in it? He works all things, not just the good things, all things. He's the master over all these isolated details that make up a life. All of these, like, what was that moments that we have in our head? All those, like, what are you doing here? All our mistakes, all our regrets, all I wish I could take that back memories. Like, okay, God's providence is personal, but how about purposeful? What's he doing? He's working for your good, always, and he never stops. The awkward silence of a Persian courtroom, the sleeplessness of a maniacal king, the dark purposes of an upstart political opportunist, in God's hand, invisible though it may seem at the time, those seemingly random things are harmonious, and they're never discordant. They're all part of his purpose for his people. This is the standout difference of Christianity, actual biblical Christianity, that coincidence is not the same as providence. Track with me on this one. Coincidence is not the same as providence. Coincidence says that in the random chaos of a meaningless universe, things sometimes align in a remarkable way. That's coincidence. The random chaos of a meaningless universe, the things sometimes align in a remarkable way. Providence, though, says that in the intentional design of a meaningful universe, God always works in a perfect way. You see the difference? Chaos is not the same thing as providence. We need to understand that distinction. Now, here's the question that I want you to think about before we turn our hearts to worshiping him in just a moment. How much must the God of the universe love you in order to pay attention to you like that? 
How much must he love you to concern himself with the isolated details of your life? How much must he love you if he works all things, all things together for your good? Like, I can understand some things, the spiritual things, the high things, the life-changing things. No, 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 no. All things. How much must he love you? And you see where this leads, right? This leads right to Jesus. There's nowhere is God's providential love for you seen more clearly than in the cross of Christ. When everything looks like it's going down, when it looks like the enemy has won, when everything is just about over, God says, nope, it's finished. I did it. It's done. The enemy cannot win. This is God's providential love for you. Yes, there is a God. Yes, he's absolutely sovereign. Yes, he's absolutely good to you. And can you think of any better message that our crazy, head-scratching, head-spinning, upside-down, lost world needs to hear right now? It's just super simple. It's going, God's been unquestionably good to me. Can I just tell you about it? It's all it is. What if the church just became full of people who just couldn't stop talking about how good God was to them? It's not a business. It's not even an organization. It's just a bunch of people who are just lit up by the fact that God has been unquestionably good to them and can't stop talking about it. Last week we closed with, um, with an old hymn. And uh, the hymn was uh, My Savior's Love or, or How Marvelous, How Wonderful. It's a great song. Today we're going to close with a song that's the same idea, uh, just a little bit different words. It's called Waymaker. And it just talks back to God, what he's done, who he is. You are Waymaker, Promise Keeper, Miracle Worker, Light in the Darkness. Oh my God, that is who you are. The reason we have to sing these things is because we are in those places, aren't we? We are in the darkness and we need light. We are lost and we need someone to make our way for us. And so when we stand and sing this, get yourself to a place where you deeply believe this about our God. He loves you more than you are ever going to know. Let's pray to him, can we? God, we do say thank you that you have never abandoned us. You've never taken your hand off the world. You've never said, I'm done, I'm out of here, I don't want anything to do with those people. You've never ever said that, and you won't say that because you're motivated by love for us. And so, God, as we reflect and sing these truths to you, just please remind us, Father, that your providential love goes before us. Your wisdom is all around us. There is no way we can outrun you or be left by you. Father, we are so grateful for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, Please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at ncchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.